The reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 22, which you will find on page 1219 in your pew Bibles. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Do keep that uh, open in front of you, 1 Peter 3. As we come to the end of a series we're doing, about what it means to be good news in our communities. I'm going to pray for us as we look at this passage. Loving Father, please would you open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your words that melt our hearts and move our wills that we might live in humble obedience to all that we read. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today our focus is primarily on one verse, and look with me to verse 15, and part of the way through it, when Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, always be ready to speak to anyone at any time about why Jesus is so important to you. It is one of the most important and yet highly ironic verses that you will ever read in the New Testament. I wonder if anyone knows why that might be. Anyone know the reason why that could be? Not Paul Curry. He was at 8 o'clock. He's heard this already. Because of, who, because of what Peter did some uh, years beforehand. 
Do you remember? I imagine that as Peter is writing this, he is having a bit of a flashback, a bit of a kind of sweaty palm, cold back of the neck, chill flashback, a rather embarrassed flashback. A flashback to being in a courtyard in Jerusalem soon after Jesus was arrested and a young girl comes up to him and says, you were with Jesus of Nazareth, weren't you? And full of fear, he responds, I don't know what you're talking about. And then a gateway, he tries to hide away and another girl points at Peter and says, hey, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter responds immediately, do you remember? I don't know this man. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Well, no one knows better than Peter what a tough ask that is. No one knows better than Peter how scared or embarrassed we can get when Jesus asks us to speak up for him in a world that is at times hostile, disparaging, sometimes intolerant to the Christian faith. You see, Peter knows that the people he was writing to were facing a tough time. They were under Roman occupation and under Roman rule. The Caesar of the time was particularly nasty to Christians. He had it in for Christians. Many Christians were losing their jobs, their businesses. They were being kicked out of their families. Some feared imprisonments. Some even faced death. And Roman emperors at the time saw themselves as divine. They demanded to be worshipped as God. Everyone was expected to say, Caesar is Lord and then offer a sacrifice to to him, which, of course, immediately was tricky for Christians. How could they proclaim someone else as Lord? When Jesus is Lord, how could they offer sacrifice to someone else when there was only one that they could offer sacrifice? That was to God himself. And Peter knows only too well, then, the temptation that we face in such opposition and in a society that is less than sympathetic, that it is often easier to put your head down and keep quiet. You see, these Christians were fearful. You pick that up in our passage. Every day they were facing the dilemma, the choice, will I stand up for Jesus, for my faith? Will I speak up for Jesus? Or will I just keep quiet, blend into the crowd, and hope no one spots me? Peter knows the temptation what we all face. And yet here, some years after, he blew it big time. He is really clear in his commands. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be ready to speak to anyone at any time about why Jesus is so important to you. So what happens for Peter? What changed him from a, from a nervous blend into the background kind of guy to a let's stand up and not be worried and to speak for Jesus kind of person? Something's changed, and what is it? And I think, although I'm not going to go into detail, this is not a time to go into all the nitty-gritties of 1 Peter. I want to focus just on those uh, couple of verses. The, the answer, I think, comes in verses 7 to the end. Seven, sorry, 17 to the end. And basically, it is the gospel, and it is especially the resurrection of Jesus that makes all the difference. It is the resurrection that changes Peter. Verse 18, Jesus was put to death in the body but was made alive by the Spirit. You see, because of the resurrection, no longer do we need to fear what other human beings might do to us. Verses 13 and 14, what's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. 
What Peter is, Peter is saying is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, there is no need to fear what other people might say or do to us. Even if the worst happens, even if they threaten to kill us, there is no need to fear. I think that's what he means here by don't, be, don't fear what they fear. Because in our world, nobody likes the thought of dying. Not li- none of us like the idea of dying a horrible death. And yet around this world, there are Christians today facing death because of their faith. Many, many hundreds and thousands have lost, literally lost their heads at the hands of ISIS and others. Iraqi Christians who have fled, who are now refugees, many lost family members because they spoke up for believing in Jesus Christ. That is the worst that can happen. And yet, says Peter, actually, even if that happens, you come to no harm at all. What does he mean by that? Well, he means, I think, what Paul meant, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even death itself. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live for Christ, that's brilliant. If I die, then it's even better because I get to be with Christ. You see, the resurrection changes everything for Peter. Actually, what can anyone do to harm me? What is the worst that could happen? Now, of course, in this country, we don't get any of that. And so we ask the question, for those who ignore us, those who find what we stand for objectionable, friends who might laugh or think less of us, those we're embarrassed to speaking to about Jesus, what is the worst that can happen to us? I mean, the very worst is death, but... That probably won't happen to us. And even if that did happen, we'd be with Jesus. Isn't that our life's goal anyway? Isn't that our life's goal to spend eternity with Jesus? Ultimately, we have nothing to fear. So why do we get ourselves in such a pickle when it comes to talking publicly about our faith? Why do we get ourselves in such a pickle? And the second thing from Peter is this, that if Jesus is risen from the dead... And we say it so glibly, don't we? Oh, Jesus is risen from the dead. If a man who died on a cross and three days later rose again from the dead, then then there can be no one more important in human history than Jesus Christ, can there? If he dies on a cross and three days later is walking around, eating, breathing, there can be no one more important to us than Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Nothing compares to him, nothing. Which is why Peter says in verse 15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. He's saying in the light of the resurrection, surely you must make sure that deep within, at the core of your being, Jesus is more important to you than anyone or anything else in life. Why would you not stand up for him? He is that important. And so, in a sense, Peter is saying, in the light of the resurrection, you've got to make a decision. Decide now who you're going to serve. Do you remember Joshua in the Old Testament? Joshua with the people of Israel? And uh, they had a choice. They had to choose when they were living in the land of Israel. Were they going to go after the gods that the people in the land were living in? Or were they going to stay faithful to the Lord God of Israel? Which were they going to do? Were they going to blend in and join in with what others were doing? Or were they going to stand firm and worship the God of Israel? And he says to them this, Choose then whom you'll serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. It is time to decide. Will we stand for Jesus or won't we? 
Joshua said, me and my house, we're going to stand for him. How about us? You see, when we stop fearing other people, and when we've decided that nothing else is more important to us than serving Jesus, well then we're ready to hear again and respond to the call of verse 15. To always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And I think Peter says when it comes to speaking about him, there are two things in this passage we need to spot. First is this, we need to live lives that are worth questioning. We need to live lives that are worth questioning. And secondly, we need to offer answers that are worth listening to. We need to offer answers that are worth listening to. Firstly, we need to live lives that are worth questioning. Do you notice that the call to speak up for Jesus comes hot on the heels of a discussion about doing good? Verse 13, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? The word there for eager is actually zealous. What he's saying is this, is when we set Jesus apart as Lord of our hearts, then we start to get really serious about serving him. We get zealous. It it matters to us to serve him day by day. In fact, nothing matters more to us than to serve him uh, in our lives day by day. But what is this doing good that he speaks of? Well, it's there in verses 8 to 9. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing. It is basically everything we've been doing in the sermons for the whole of this term. Everything we've been talking about, about not being negative, not being resentful or bitter or complaining or unforgiving, not being selfish or harsh with words, instead being forgiving and compassionate, being radically generous and affirming and building others up with our words. It's not a call to a moralistic life. It's not a call to a life of pointing our finger saying, we're holier than thou. That is not the Christian life. It's not a call to just be nice people and ethical people. Lots of people are really lovely people. No, it's a call to living on our frontline communities, lives of radical. It's that word zealous, no holds barred, humility, compassion, generosity and non-retaliation. See, here's the deal. When we start to be zealous to live the Christ-like life, then we will start to become seriously evangelistic. I read these words. It is not simply that ordinary Christians live good lives that enable them to invite friends to evangelistic events. Our daily lives are the evangelistic events. When we think of evangelism, we should not first think of guest services, evangelistic courses, street preaching or door knocking. We should think of Gary at the meeting of the Residents Association, Hannah in her office, Sharon serving meals to her elderly mother. See, evangelistic events are not things we put on. They are things we live each and every day, wherever we are. Every moment when we seek to serve Christ in the communities where we find ourselves, to show that radical love and humility, patience and kindness. And Peter's assumption is that when people live those kind of lives, people do start to ask questions. Do you remember Jesus? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Peter, I think, had those words in mind when he wrote earlier on in chapter 2. Live such good lives among unbelievers that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us.
Jesus and Peter say, live lives that are worth questioning. If we begin to live the lives that we've been talking about for these last six to eight weeks, it will provoke questions. But secondly, we need to offer answers that are worth listening to. We need to offer to people answers that are worth listening to. We need to be ready and be alert for opportunities that will arise to say why Jesus is important to us. And notice verse 16, we're to do it gently. Sorry, at the end of verse 15, gently and with respect. That's why I think the Bible doesn't tell us to go onto the streets and yell at people telling them that they're sinners going to hell. I find that deeply uncomfortable. I don't know about you. I do have an issue that uh, Mike uh, down in town has been uh, 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 told that he's not allowed to speak about faith publicly on the street. I think that was a massive issue and that is a great danger and we should be very worried about that. If the law says we can't speak about our faith publicly. But I'm afraid I disagree with him fundamentally that the way we speak about faith is to shout at them that they're sinners going to hell. Because it doesn't treat people with gentleness or respect. I think Peter envisages something different. What does he envisage? I think he maybe envisages the power of the apt reply. What do I mean by that? Some of you may remember John Dixon. He was an Australian, came to speak to us as part of a Passion for Life mission we had many years ago. And he tells the story of Steve, who was a plumber back in Australia. And for the most of his life, he was a typical sceptic when it came to religion. He was not an atheist, but he never attended church. And his contact with Christians over the year left him with the impression that most of them were hypocrites. Steve did have a time, uh, did have time though, for one Christian that he knew. He was a cycling friend. And so each Saturday morning, they would put on Lycra. <coughs> Men in their 40s in Lycra. Keeping on their bikes, they would go, keeping up their heart rate and they'd start the odd conversation as they rode. And one day they were riding along, and Steve began to pontificate about the hypocrites who go to church. Some of those churches, he said, are real rat bags. And his friend just listened. They go to church on Sundays, Steve said, and then they live pretty ordinary lives the rest of the week. Sorry for Australian, I really apologise. Well, at that point, Steve's mate responded, Come on, mate. Don't go worrying about those people. God will look after them. You worry about yourself and God. That's the important thing. And then like blokes do, they just went silent and carried on cycling in their lycra. Well, these words powerfully affected Steve. Uh, John Dickinson tells that uh, for the rest of the day, he pondered what a hypocrite he'd been to criticise Christians when he was doing nothing to honour the Almighty. Those words, you, you, worry, you worry about yourself and God, just kept going round and round his head. And by the evening, Steve was convinced that actually he was the one with a spiritual problem. So he went somewhere on his own. He uttered a prayer, an apology to the God he'd been ignoring all his life. And the next day, Steve took himself along to church with all the other hypocrites. And to the surprise of everyone, especially himself, he gave his life to Christ. The next time Steve and his mate went riding, he told him that he'd become a Christian. He told him also how much those few words had affected him. And to Steve's amazement and amusement, his friend said, what did I say? I can't remember. You see, it's not always the number of words that counts. It's not always the eloquence. 
It's not that we've got major theological abilities to speak. Just the right reply at the right time. Or maybe it's being alert to others around us, just seeing others. Uh, I remember hearing of Dr. Helen Rosevere, who was a Christian doctor, worked overseas in the Congo for many years. Maybe you know of her. But she had some time back in Ireland, and she tells of how she felt a lump in her breast and had to go to hospital in Belfast, where she was told the devastating news that she had breast cancer. She tells of how, having heard that, she came downstairs, went onto the train, uh, to the train station and onto the platform, and she saw another lady who looked terribly dejected. Helen turned to her and said, are you okay? And the lady said to her, no, I'm not. Well, the train came into the platform. They both got on and they sat together. Helen asked the lady what the problem was and the lady told her that she too had been to hospital that morning and she too had been given some dreadful news. Well, Helen was able to respond to say that I've just been to hospital too and I too have been given some dreadful news. And they were able to talk about it and share how they were feeling at that moment. But then as the journey went on, Helen was able to begin to share with her how she felt about the future. She was able to explain that she trusted in Jesus and that because of his resurrection, death didn't scare her as much as maybe it would have. And she talked about the hope that she had, the hope of the God who would walk with her through this illness and the God who would be with her at the end of it, no matter what happens. And before they got off the train, this was just an ordinary doctor. She was not an evangelist. She had led that lady to Christ. Simply because Helen was alert on the platform. She saw what was going on and she was prepared to say, how are you doing? Are you okay? And she was ready to listen. And maybe you worry because you won't know all the answers. Maybe you're worried about talking about Jesus because someone will come along, someone told me at 8 o'clock that they'd been to a, a talk by a philosopher up at the hospice who was incredibly bright, who certainly did not believe in life after death at all and said... How on earth do you begin to argue with someone, you know, a a professor, a philosopher? Well, maybe you remember the story of the blind man. Do you remember that Jesus healed? When uh, Jesus healed him, it caused a real storm. All the local brainy theologians and philosophers kept questioning him and his parents about what exactly had happened, who exactly this Jesus was. They were going backwards and forwards, trying to get to the bottom of it, questioning, questioning, questioning. It reaches a moment... When the poor man who was blind but now can see just says, look, I have no idea how to answer your questions. I have no idea about all the theology. I don't really know who he is. All I know is I was blind and now I can see. Whoever he is, he has changed my life. That's why I put my hope in. He's made all the difference to me. And I think Peter says to each of us, just be ready. Just be alert. Just be on the lookout. Be praying for opportunities anytime, any place. To speak to anyone that might want to talk to you about why Jesus is important to you. And don't worry if you know all the answers. Just tell them the difference he's made in your life. Amen.